Well, thank you so much, Rebecca, for that great prayer. Um, that's a great name, by the way, and a really great outfit, I noticed as well. So as she walks back to her seat, you can all take a look. So I really do appreciate that. That was a beautiful prayer. And thank you all for being here. I'm so excited you're here today. I'm excited to be here myself. And as we close over the next, what is it, probably six weeks, um, the Book of Mormon, I hope that we can finish strong and learn together and um, take away what the Lord would have us take away. Really the message of Christ, which is what we started with, if you remember, almost two years ago. Um, today, as mentioned, we'll be talking about this idea, this theme, yet another thematic lesson of the trial of your faith. Now, this comes from a scripture um, that's near the end of the Book of Mormon. So Moroni at this point is on his own. His father has been killed and he has been left. And you'll remember he says, I alone am left. And I, don't, I know not if I will be slain, but I will not deny the Christ. And he wanders for decades after that point. And as I think it was Kelly that taught this lesson, as she mentioned, he continues to think that he is about to be done, whether killed or die or, or whatever, and he keeps closing the record. Um, and then he keeps finding he has more time. And one of those, that first time that he closes and then kind of restarts um, the record is when he adds the Book of Ether. And he, uh, he, in the tradition of his father, abridges a historical record. This time, unlike his father did the Nephite record, of course, he does the Jaredite record. And he abridges the plates that were found with their record. And um, as he does so, in Ether chapter 12, which I think is probably a favorite for many of us, it is one of my favorite chapters of the Book of Mormon, he starts to, he actually steps away from the historical record and Moroni himself inserts himself into the narrative in a way, or, or rather takes an aside, and he begins to make commentary on the lessons that we can learn or doctrines that he has learned that apply to the things that we are seeing in the story that he is abridging. So Ether chapter 12, you see Moroni himself step aside and, and essentially begin to say, and thus we see, and to teach from his own experience. And our theme today comes from one of those verses. It's Ether 12, verse 6. It says, and now I'm Moroni. So this is him right there stating, I'm interjecting into the story. I, Moroni, would speak somewhat concerning these things. I would show unto the world that faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Wherefore, dispute not because ye see not, for ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. And that is our theme for today, this idea of the trial of our faith. Um, when I first assigned myself, because I do the assigning, I don't know why the other sisters let me get away with that, but they do. Um, when I did this assigning, I assigned, and I thought, you know, trial of your faith, and I was really going to focus on trials, because that's positive and happy. And, um, but then when I started reading a little bit, I actually very early on in my preparation read this quote by Elder Scott. I want you to listen um, to what he had to say about this verse. Um, he says, the trial of our faith is simply a matter of exercising our faith. You can learn to use faith more effectively by applying this principle taught by Moroni, faith, and he quotes the scripture. Thus, every time you try your faith, that is, act in worthiness on an impression, you will receive the confirming evidence of the Spirit. Those feelings will fortify your faith. As you repeat that pattern, your faith will become stronger. So hopefully you heard Elder Scott is adding, yes, there are trials to our faith, times of trial through which we live. But a trial of our faith can also be our willingness to live a principle, whether in darkness or in light. And eventually, as, as Alma 32 invites us to experiment upon the word, or as John 7, in John 7, Jesus invites us to, to live the doctrine so that we may know that it is doctrine. That over time as we do that, that we do come to know, we receive the witness that Moroni promises, the witness that comes after either the trial of our faith, which is those difficult times that we endure, or as Elder Scott puts it, the trial or the tryout of your faith, the proving, the living of your faith. And it is after we experiment and live our faith over a period of time, again, whether in darkness or light, that that faith, then we get that witness. So both of those are relevant as we talk about that today. And opened up the door a little bit more in my own pre preparation and thoughts, so we are not going to simply talk about trials, although they will come up, obviously, because those are a great evidence of trials of our faith. But I want you to have all of them open in your mind today. Now, this is one of those thematic lessons, which means 
uh, like all lessons, but even worse, there's way, 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 way more material than we can possibly cover in an hour, even if I speak as quickly as I possibly know how. And because every other week that I've actually tried to say everything that I prepared, it failed miserably. Um, because I couldn't, there was no possible way. Um, today I have tried to cut it back to three main topics or three main principles on this subject of trial of your faith. But please know, sisters, that there are dozens more stories, scriptures, principles that you can pull out of the Book of Mormon. This is not an exhaustive study of this theme today. I picked three. I hope you will find more. I hope all of us will live more. But I picked three for today. And we'll even see if we get through those. Number one, faith precedes the miracle. You're probably familiar with a book with writings by President Kimball by this title. Faith precedes the miracle. Um, and we see this, um, Ether 12, if you're still there, I didn't turn there yet. Ether chapter 12 gives a list of examples. Ether chapter 12 and Hebrews chapter 11, by the way, are really similar in many ways. But you see here that Moroni, who is still giving his interjection, his, his discourse, he begins, to, he says that it is because of faith that miracles happen. And then he gives a list of, this is right, starting in verse seven, right after the verse that we read. He gives a list of all of the miracles happen and he keeps emphasizing that they happen because of faith, because of the faith. So you see in verse seven, that was faith by faith that Christ showed himself unto our fathers. Wherefore it must needs be that some had faith in him for they, he showed not himself unto the world. So he showed himself unto them because they had faith. And it goes on, by the faith was the law of Moses given. Verse 12, for if there be no faith among the children of men, God can do no miracle upon them. Verse 13, the faith of Alma and Amulek caused the prison to tumble to the earth. The faith of Nephi and Lehi wrought a change upon the, ne the Lamanites. It was the faith of Ammon that wrought, and his brethren that wrought such a great miracle upon the Lamanites. It was, and the faith and the miracles wrought by them were wrought by their faith, both those who were before and those who were after Christ. By faith, the three apostles obtained a promise that they should not taste of death. And then he says in 18, and neither at any time hath any wrought miracles until after they, their faith, wherefore they first believed in the Son of God. You can find a similar a list, a, a complementary list of miracles wrought by faith, Bible stories, if you read Hebrews chapter 11. So if miracles are dependent upon faith, if faith precedes the miracle, as President Kimball taught, then the first question we should ask is then, well, what is faith? Alma 32, chapter, or verse 21. And now, as I said concerning faith, faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Therefore, if ye have faith, ye hope for things which are not seen, which are true. If you remember back in Ether 12, 6, um, Moroni gives us another definition that is very similar. Faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Alma 32 adds that idea that they are things that are not, which are not seen but which are true. So sisters, what is faith? Give me maybe the easiest way. What are some synonyms for faith? Belief. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of the starting point, right? Any other synonyms for faith? Trust. I love that one. Thank you. Trust in God. What else? Hope. Faith and hope are so closely tied that Moreau and I writes an entire discourse about faith, love, faith, hope, and charity that we'll study in depth another week. Faith and hope are, are really closely tied. What else? Action. Thank you. Who are you quoting, by the way? Do you know? Joseph Smith in the lectures on faith. Lecture first. He says that faith is the moving moving cause, that's the word, moving cause of all action. He says essentially if you did not have faith that a seed would turn into a plant, you wouldn't plant the seed. Everything you do, whether it's switching on a light bulb, reading a book, you do it because you have faith that there will be some outcome and that is why you do it. And if you sit down and think about it very long, he says you'll realize there is nothing, that if you did not have faith, you would literally do and think nothing. The faith is a moving cause of every action and every thought. You're doing it because you believe in an outcome. What is another synonym of faith? Yeah. Power, thank you. You know who you're quoting as well? I mean, quoting many. But she's reading right along in those lectures on faith. Joseph will then go on, or the brethren in Kirtland will then go on in that, um, those lectures on faith. 
to say that not only is faith a moving cause of all action, the reason that you do anything, but it is also power. In fact, power is one of the great synonyms of faith. It is the power by which God created the earth. It is the power by which the earth, by which the earth still spins. It is the power by which the planets stay in their orbits. It is the power by which God created man. It is p- God's power. Faith is the power by which God does his work. It is the power by which angels do their work. Um, let me read you a quote on this. Quoting from the lectures on faith. I believe I pulled it out here. Here it is. Faith is not only a principle of action, but of power also in all intelligent beings, whether in heaven or on earth. It was by faith that the worlds were framed. God spoke, chaos heard, and worlds came into order by reason of the faith there was in him. So with man also. He spake by faith in the name of God, and the sun stood still, the moon obeyed, the mountains were moved, prisons fell, lions' mouths were closed, the human heart lost its enmity, fire its violence, armies their power, the sword its terror, and death its dominion, and all this by reason of the faith which was in him. Powerful words about the power of faith from Joseph Smith. So here we see that faith is belief, trust in God, hope, the moving cause of all action, and the power by which God and men do work. Oh. And, because, and hopefully you can see from that, or because of that, we can see that there are various levels or types of faith. Let me read this. I'm looking for my quote from President Packer. Um, and I'm going to read two different, they kind, of, they kind of say it different ways, but it's the same principle. So I want you to listen for these principles. I'm going to read Eller Packer, and then I'm going to read Eller Holland. I want you to listen for the different ways that they stratify or, or parse out faith, the different kinds of faith. President Packer, there are two kinds of faith. One of them functions ordinarily in the life of every soul. It is the kind of faith born by experience. It gives us certainty that a new day will dawn, that spring will come for today, that growth will take place. It is the kind of faith that relates us with confidence for that which is scheduled to happen. So that's that moving cause of all action. That's that belief part of faith. Then he goes on to say, there is another kind of faith, rare indeed. It is the kind of faith that causes things to happen, not just believes they will. It is the kind of faith that is worthy and prepared and unyielding, and it calls for things that otherwise would not be. It is the kind of faith that moves people. It is the kind of faith that sometimes moves things. You remember Jesus, if you had a grain of mustard seed worth of faith, you could cause that mountain to be removed. It comes by gradual growth. It is a marvelous, even transcendent power, a power as real and invisible as electricity, directed and channeled. It has great effect. Elder Holland also said, preparatory faith is formed by experiences in the past, by the known which provides a basis for belief. But redemptive faith must often be exercised toward experiences in the future. The unknown, which provides an opportunity for the miraculous, exacting faith, mountain-moving faith, faith like that of the brother of Jared precedes the miracle and the knowledge. He had to believe before God spoke. He had to act in the ability to in the ability to complete the action. He had to act before the ability to complete the action was apparent. He had to commit to the complete experience in advance of even the first segment of its realization. Faith is to agree, to agree unconditionally and in advance to whatever conditions God may require in both the near and distant future. So sisters, as I read those two quotes, what did you learn about faith? Are there kinds of faith? What would you, give me a characterization of a kind of faith based on what I just read. So a preparatory faith, and you said that's based on experiences in the past. Okay, so that's based on, yeah. Any others? He also talked about redemptive faith and exacting faith that, that encompass the willingness to submit to the uncertainty of the future regardless of what God requires. And President Packer talked about a first faith that is based on belief, that is a cause of action in ourselves based on our beliefs, but a second, rarer kind of faith that actually causes things to happen. Not a belief that things will, but rather that makes them happen. Faith that is power. And it is faith, that faith, that God requires 
before miracles. Now, in the, the Book of Mormon, we have um, a couple of different places, Mormon chapter 9, Moroni chapter 7, that talks us, as, in addition to Ether chapter 12, that talks about this idea of miracles and that they can occur. And specifically, in Mormon chapter 9, um, this is Moroni now writing in behalf of his father. But he says, Behold, I will show unto you a God of miracles, even the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And it is that same God who created the heavens and the earth. That was verse 11. Now in verse 19, he says, And if there are miracles wrought then in old times, why has God ceased to be a God of miracles and yet be an unchangeable being? And behold, I say unto you, he changeth not. If so, he would cease to be God, and he ceaseth not to be God, and he is a God of miracles. Moroni's point is that God still works miracles today. What evidence do you have that God today is still a God of miracles? Think about your own life. You don't have to answer this one aloud. Do you believe that God is still a God of miracles? Do you believe that he works miracles in our lives? And how does he work those miracles? It is by our faith. It is preceded by our faith. In fact, he says he cannot do them without them. And this is something I've pondered a lot in preparation for this lesson. I don't think I understand it fully. Um, but if you look at Ether chapter 12, I put this one on the board. And we already actually read this verse. For if there be no faith among the children of men, God can do no miracle among them. He literally, it says he cannot. Not he will not. He cannot. Neither at any time hath any wrought miracles until after their faith. Any. What percentage is any? Like, a, like zero, you know, or a hundred. It's all encompassing. Um, for, and then Moroni says, for I know that thou workest unto the children of men according to their faith. Moroni chapter seven. It is by faith that miracles by rot, are wrought. Therefore, if faith has ceased, or if miracles have ceased, woe be unto the children of men for it is become, because of unbelief. So they cannot be wrought. Miracles cannot happen unless there is faith. My question is, Why? Why, if God wants, can't he just like make a tree appear if I want him to, or if he wants to and I need it? Why does it require our faith? Somebody's pointing like there's, oh, there you are, Sherry Barnes, I couldn't see it. Okay, so Sherry is saying that faith, the faith being conditioned, or miracles being conditioned upon faith is a law, and that God has to obey all law in order to be God. Okay, thank you. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Right. So, and, and so that's an interesting thought, is that even if, if you don't have faith and you wouldn't believe regardless, then even if God did a miracle, it would not seem miraculous to you. And that's interesting. So what, you know, that kind of takes you into the thought of what, does, what constitutes a miracle. You know, it's that does, if a tree falls in the wood and no one hears it, did, did it still fall? If he do, Christ does a miracle and you don't recognize it as such, a as, as such is it still a miracle? And yet there's still something, I'm glad you brought up the New Testament examples, because once again, in those examples, often he says, thy faith has made thee whole. Do you have faith to be healed? He always is preconditioning miracles upon faith. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. So for those that couldn't hear and for those of the podcast, um, essentially the idea that all of us actually do experience miracles in our lives and whether, you know, whether or not we, we um, recognize that we have faith, perhaps we do. 
because if faith is involved in a miracle and they're happening all around us, am I getting this about right? Then, then perhaps there is a modicum of faith that we don't fully recognize. One more comment, and we'll move on, Tara. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Interesting. It's interesting to ask the questions. And I always wish in this setting, which is tough, both with the size of the room, the time, and then the, the podcast um, that we're always aware of, um, it's always, you know, we'd love to have more discussion like this. So I appreciate all your comments because um, you had thoughts that I hadn't had. Thought, had. Um, we're going to only spend a few more minutes on this. I'm trying hard to kind of stay on pace. But let me add a few more. To the list, and I think it is worth pondering. I, I do know that there are examples I can point to, for example, the man at the pool of Bethesda, where the question of his faith isn't asked before, and maybe it was and not recorded, and um, it goes back to what was said about, you know, sometimes we have faith and we don't realize it. Um, and so I'm not saying, and then, and then there is this idea that God can do no miracle among them um, unless there is faith. So there is something to that, and, I, and like I said, I don't understand it fully, so this is more exploratory than anything. Um, but let me add some thoughts I had, and then, and then please don't hold me to anything in the past 10 minutes or the, the coming five, um, because again, it's something that I'm exploring, but this verse, like I said, intrigued me this week, and it, and it really made me think, what is that relationship between our, our faith and the miracle, and why does it precede the miracle, our faith? Um, so a couple, and we talked about one of these before, but I am determined to show this clip. Um, let me show this, and then I'll... I'm never going to make it difference. Me neither. I'm a royal ant and I can't even fly yet. I'm too little. Oh, Being little is not such a bad thing. Yes, it is. No, it's not. It's too. It's not. It's too. It's not. It's not. It's not. Oh. A seat. I need, I need a seat. Uh. Uh, here. here. Pretend, pretend that that's a seat. It's a rock. Oh, I know it's a rock. I know, but let's just pretend for a minute that it's a seed, all right? We'll just use our imaginations. Now, now, do you see our tree? Everything that made that giant tree is already contained inside this tiny little seed. All it needs is some time, a little bit of sunshine and rain, and voila! This rock will be a tree? Seed to tree. You've got to work with me here, all right? Okay. Now, you might not feel like you can do much now, but that's just because, well, you're not a tree yet. You just have to give yourself some time. You're still a seed. But it's a rock. I know it's a rock! Don't you think I know a rock when I see a rock? I've spent a lot of time around rocks! You're weird. So, I love that clip from A Bug's Life. Um, but that's, that was something that came to mind when one of the things I thought about was this idea of an eye of faith. We've talked about it before. That phrase is actually seen in Alma chapter 32, where it does talk about, ironically, planting a seed. And it says Invite that... favorite Disney friends Whoa. for a play date with the new Disney insulated sippy cup. YouTube was still going. Sorry. Oh, that was scary. Um... So in Alma chapter 32, it's ironically, um, because of the cliff, talking about planting a seed. And it says that even after you plant the seed, you'll remember that you have to exercise faith and diligence and patience in nourishing the word that it may take root. And that you have to look forth, look forward to the fruit, having that patience, um, waiting for the tree to bring forth fruit unto you. And it, uh, in verse 41, but by your faith, with great diligence and with patience, looking forward to the fruit thereof. So this is the idea of the eye of faith. It is the idea that you see things that you cannot see, which is the definition of faith. And in this case, those things that you can't see are the future result. Whether for this little ant in a bug's life, it was the fact that a seed can actually turn into that tree, or, or even just the ability to see that the seed, the rock, the rock as a seed, to have faith for a minute, to see something other than what we see. The Book of Mormon has examples of this. One of my favorites is actually, uh, I think I put this on a slide, this scripture, um, but be, this is Lehi, but behold, I have obtained, I have obtained a land of promise in the which I do rejoice. Yea, and I know that the Lord will deliver my sons out of the hands of Laban and bring them down again to us in the wilderness. Note the tense of Lehi's verb. 
Which tense is his verb? To obtain. Which tense? Past tense. Based on the context of the scripture, when did he say this? He said it when his sons were visiting Laban. Where is Lehi at that point? He's in the desert, about three days outside of Jerusalem, parked there, waiting for the next instruction. And yet he speaks about a promised land that he has already obtained. I find this fascinating, that Lehi had such faith in that promise of God, such faith in that promised land, that he speaks about it as something he has already received. How does that apply to your and my life, sisters? Are there things that you are waiting for that you can take as if you've already received, that you can see with an eye of faith? I was once asked to speak actually in this state, in the state conference about Joseph Smith and how he continued on in the face of op- opposition, he, that he encountered incredible opposition in his life. And as I pondered on that, one of the answers that came to my mind was this exact principle the eye of faith that Joseph had seen in vision, that the church would fill the Rocky Mountains and North and South America and that it would fill the world. So in those times when it seemed like everything was broken, when his saints were strewn with bloody footprints upon the, the frozen tundra of Missouri and he is locked in a jail, seemingly nothing to save him. It is in those times he could look with an eye of faith at the things he had seen and know somehow even though he saw no way out then that they would come to pass. What do you and I have in our eye of faith? What can we see though it is invisible to us today? And how does that vision, whether of a future mortal outcome or of a future heavenly outcome, which is the one vision I know we can all share, the eye of faith we can all have, how does that affect your hard times when it seems with the mortal eye that nothing is going right and it never can be right again? I have faith. Quickly, um, because of, again, a time. Uh, that's another one I came to, this idea of why does faith precede the miracle? I have faith is we have to see it before we can have it. See it in our, in our eye of faith, our spiritual eyes. Number two is we must act. So if you have a seed, for example, my dad once said that he thought that one of the greatest examples of faith in the world is planting a seed. You get this little, essentially a rock from the clip, and you put it in the ground, and you hope something's going to happen. You just, you know. But if you think about it, there is an action that is required on our part. We actually have to plant that seed in the ground. I'm not going to show this clip. I, I reviewed it and thought maybe it was a little too much for this class. But Indiana Jones and the Leap of Faith. There's a little, there's a little part in there where his dad's suffering. I thought, oh, maybe a little much. But if you can think back on that scene, it's the idea that you have to take that first step. You have to be willing to take the step. And if you always stand right on the edge of that ledge and you never take a step forward, God can't work a miracle. It's interesting what sticks out in our minds. When I was in college back 50 years ago, that's just not true. I'm not 50 years old. Um, and I read, there was this one line, this one person said this one random t- sacrament talk in this one random word, one random day. And she said this, and it stuck with me ever since. She said, when you do things on faith, you allow the ability for, for miracles to happen. But if you aren't willing to pick up your leg and step, if you aren't willing to actually take the action and plant the seed, how is God going to work the miracle? You have to open the door for the miracle, and the door for that miracle is faith. First Nephi chapter 4, speaking of this same section of the Book of Mormon, is a beautiful example of that. When Nephi, after trying his ways, all the ways he could think of, and I think very admirably, but having it not work to get the plates, what does he say in chapter 4, verse 13? Sorry, wrong verse, verse 6. Chapter 4 of 1 Nephi 4, 6. He says, And I was led by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand the things which I should do. And then this great word, Nevertheless, I went forth. When Nephi started walking into the city, he did not know that Laban was drunk. He did not know that his plan, that anything would work. He didn't have a plan. He just went forth, having tried everything he knew beforehand. So sometimes we have to take a step into the water before they begin to part. A friend once asked everyone, all of her friends on her birthday to send her a picture of what they thought faith looked like. This is the picture I picked. Um, This is the darkened woods with light ahead. But in the present, you have to take a few steps in the darkness. This might remind you of a famous quote by President Packer from a a talk called Candle of the Lord, where he says, faith to, to be faith 
requires that we do not know everything. I'm just, I'm uh, paraphrasing for time. Um, but it requires that we take a step or two into the darkness only to find the way lit before us. And when we do that, when we give God the ability, the, oh my goodness, sorry about that, really loud thing, give God the opportunity for miracles to happen, then they can. Examples from the Book of Mormon. Mosiah trusted his sons to go on a mission to the Lamanites. And what happened when he took that step of faith? The conversion of an entire people. Lehi leaving Jerusalem. And what resulted? They were saved from destruction. The Jaredites praying to God. The result? They were saved from confounding of languages. Lehi waiting in the desert was saved. Nephi, Nephi and Laban, we already talked about that, resulted in getting the brass plates. The brother of Jared and 16 stones resulted in the miracle of light. 2,000 stripling wares resulted in a miracle of being saved from death because of their faith. The, third Nephi, the saints in third Nephi saw greater miracles than Jews because of their faith, and on and on and on. As you have the faith to follow, whether it's Aliyah, Hona, or the Lord, and take a step into the darkness, the way is lit, and not only that, but it, since it is not the controlled path, it is not the one that you already know and you can see every step, it gives God the opportunity to take us to greater places, to our bountifuls, to our promised lands, just like he did for the people of the Book of Mormon. Um, we don't have time for the next past points, but I'm just going to breeze through them so you can think through them. One is proving. Another reason that faith pr precedes the miracle, and this ties to some of the answers that you were giving. The idea that God is here, he says, and I will prove them there herewith, if they will do all things which the Lord their God hath commanded them to do. That's Abraham 3.25, paraphrased. So it's not just that. It, it, part of that necessity of our faith is our learning, is our being proven, is our, our coming um, to know him. But it's not just that he will prove us. It's not just that he, he wants us to prove or be proven or be taught. It's that he'll prove us when things are hard. He will prove us, yes, but he will prove us when we don't know if things will work out when we can't see the end from the beginning, when we don't know how long the trial or test will, will last, when we don't know how long we will last, when we have lost perhaps almost all hope, that is when he will prove us. I've thought about that word. Um, it says that faith is the evidence or the substance, assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. One of the Greek translations for the, that word in, um, that's found in the Hebrews is proof. I've thought about what is that proof that God is looking for? Is, our, is it the proof that he gives us that, you know, that there are these things ahead? Or is it perhaps the proof that we give him? The evidence that we will act even when we can't see. That proving of our faith. And Mosiah 22 and 24, those chapters are great evidence of that. Of people being proved, of having to bear burdens to prove their faith. Um, I'm gonna skip the last one for time. It goes back to that idea of power that takes actually power on both sides. That faith that changes things um, has to come from us as well as from God. Um, but now we're gonna move on to number two. So principle one was, was that faith precedes the miracle. Principle two, I have named things that are true. Now, and I've subtitled it, how long will you wait? This is the part of the lesson sisters where we get real personal. Because as I mentioned, I'm the one who signs the lessons. Oh uh, well, um, and this scripture, Alma 32:21, has something that has been something that for me has been very uh, much a part of my um, struggle and my reality and my wonderings. Again, faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Wherefore, if you have hope, if you have faith, you hope for things which are not seen, which are true. Those last three words have have spent a lot of time in my mind. I have wondered, how do I know what things are true? When blessings don't come, are, how do I know what's true? How do I know what to see with my eye of faith? How do I know what to count on? Um, one thing, as I've pondered on that, how do I actually know what is true? So I can put faith in it, instead of just what I hope might be true, but it's just my wish. And as I ponder on that, I've come up with not a lot of answers, but one. And it is this, pulling again from the Book of Mormon, the promises of God. Second Nephi 10, 17, For I will fulfill my promises which I have made unto the children of men, that I do unto them while they are in the flesh. 
Alma 37, 17, for he will fulfill all his promises which he shall make unto you, for he has fulfilled his promises which he has made unto our fathers. Second Nephi 3, yea, thus prophesied Joseph, I am sure of this thing even as I am sure of the promise of Moses. Mormon 8, for the eternal purposes of the Lord shall roll on until all his promises shall be fulfilled. So what things are true? Maybe not everything we wish would happen, but God has declared that his promises are sure. I have struggled with that phrase in recent weeks. And that's why this was a really ironic lesson for me to, t to assign myself. I was like, we gave the single girl the lesson on patience? Oh, good heavens. But yet it is true that the trial of our faith often includes waiting. As Neil A. Maxwell put it, faith in God includes faith in God's timing. So, whether the promises are specific or general, we do not know their timing. The timing can be unknown, and that waiting is part of our faith. I was talking to a friend that just showed up, actually. Um, we were um, talking recently about a story from the Book of Mormon, because um, I told her the only thing we could talk about if we were gonna see each other was the Book of Mormon and Trial of Faith. And, um, and we were talking about the Jaredites. I've thought about them. That when they got in those barges, those eight barges, with those little 16 glowing stones, and set off into the waters, we do not know if they knew how long they would be there. We don't know if they thought that the promised land was, they'd crossed other waters, and we can only presume those were shorter crossings. So when they got into those barges, they didn't know if this was another 10-day stint, or a two-day stint, or a two-week stint. And on day 200, as they've been tossed under the waters for the umpteenth time, they still don't know if it's coming tomorrow or in another 100 days. And if they had guessed either, they would have been wrong. It would have been even longer. Remember, it's well over 300 days that they arrive in the Promised Land. And on the day before, or perhaps three before, as long as they're out of sight of land, they still don't know it's coming. How would that have felt? When would you have given up? When would you have thought we must have understood wrong? I can't do this a single day more. I cannot sit in this darkness another day. When would you have given up? But the promises of God were sure. And they arrived in the promised land. Why are we sometimes made to wait for God's promises to be fulfilled? Why is waiting a part of the trial of our faith? You'll remember in Moses chapter 5, and also if you watch in the temple, that it is after many days of Adam and Eve having been cast out of the garden and sacrificing according to God's command, it is after many days, it says, that an angel of the Lord appears unto them and says, Why dost thou offer sacrifice unto the Lord? And they say, We know not. And, and then he teaches them. But you see these repeated periods of many days when Adam and Eve, who represent us, are required to be righteous in the dark, to not understand fully, or to just hold on to hope. This is something the scriptures calls the process of time. Process of time. What does that phrase mean to you? Just think about it. And why is the process of time necessary? We've been talking a lot about seeds today, so we might as well continue with that. It's the idea that things just don't pop into existence. Um, that all good things take time. And that, pr that processes are more important than events. Let me say that again. Processes, in general, are more important than events. There's a great apocryphal story, I cannot find a source, apocryphal story of um, J. Golden Kimball, known as the Swearing Apostle, 
um, of him showing in different versions as different groups of people. Let's say some visitors from the east around Salt Lake City. And they're in their bus or wagon or whatever it was. I don't know. Again, they're all apocryphal, so I don't know if this was true. It may be. And he shows them all the buildings the saints have built. And they're all like, oh. And he's like, you know, we built this one, the whatever, in so many years or so many months. And they, they keep saying, oh, back in the East, we could have done that in half the time. And J.D. Golden Kimball's getting really frustrated as they continue to go on this tour and they keep telling him about how they could have done it better or faster back east. So finally they turn the corner and they pass by the Salt Lake Temple in this story, Fable. And Jacob Golden Kimball just doesn't look at it. He doesn't even like bat an eye. And the guests are looking at the Salt Lake Temple, which at that period would have been like this gargantuan building in the middle of Salt Lake. And finally they say, well, wh wh what's that building? And he looks over and he says, darn if I know, it wasn't there yesterday. <laughs> I don't know if it's true. And he didn't say darn, just by the way. But it proves a great point. Because what was the reality of that building, of the Salt Lake Temple? The reality was 40 years. The reality was building a foundation and then covering it up because the military's coming. The reality was undigging that foundation and finding out it was cracked and having to tear the whole thing out and start over. The reality was, was people who lost their legs walking miles to go work on the temple. The reality was giving blood, sweat, tears, all your free time, your free money, for 40 years. Things don't pop into existence, not things of worth. They take a process of time, and in that process, not only the temple is built, but the people who built it are too. And they become something. If we looked back at Alma chapter 32, and if you, I invite you to look at this sometime and look for this principle. It is interesting. If you read about, the, again, the seed that is planted, I, I invite you to look at the number of times that, the, that from verse 27 on that it references some idea of waiting or of patience or of long-suffering, or of having to be diligent, presumably over time, because that's the only way you can be diligent. And you will see this idea over and over that faith is tied to waiting. And sometimes, like the Jaredites, waiting without knowing. I brought this plant. I am not a good horticulturalist. If one of you is, please come to my house. I have very many questions in my yard. This particular type of plant, an orchid, I can keep alive for years. It's a miracle. And, but the orchid is an interesting flower. There are some others that are like that, in that it is not very frequently blooming, at least not my orchids. Maybe somebody, maybe I'm doing that wrong. Don't tell me though, because I'm so proud of my orchid ability. Um, but it doesn't bloom very often. It, it blooms once, twice a year. I don't know. I don't really keep, really keep track, but it's not often. And yet, twice a week, religiously, I water it. Twice a week, continue to water, looking forward, like we talked about the eye of faith. Are you going to keep watering your faith when it seems like nothing is growing, when it seems like nothing is there? And why are we left to wait? Again, because God cares more about processes than about events. Not to say that he doesn't care about events. Your ceiling is so incredibly, eternally essential and important. But in the end, in addition to that ceiling, what does God care about? He cares about your marriage, which is the process that follows that event. Baptismal covenants are essential to enter the kingdom of heaven. But why do we make and keep covenants just so that we can check the box? No, it is in the hopes that we will strive to live them so that we will become something. The covenants, baptism covenants, ordinance is an event. Keeping that covenant and becoming as God is is the process. I have a friend whose mother, um, they had like, I can't even remember, 12 children? If she ever hears this, she'll hate me for forgetting. Lots of kids. And they would have a family garden. And people would ask her about her garden, like, what are you growing? How's it going? What's, how's it looking? And she says, oh, I don't really know. I don't care. I'm not growing vegetables. I'm growing children. Which is a great thought. What is the process? What's the real outcome that you're looking for? 
Thus, God often comes in the fourth watch because he is letting a process take place until the very end. Um, We're going to have to skip a little. So faith in God includes faith in God's timing. So how long will you wait? And what are you waiting for? Mine is a very, I've made, you know, I, I have a specific thing, things in my life, as do you. But how long will you wait? How many times will you ride, metaphorically, I'm going to speak of my own, how many times will you ride a ski lift alone? How many times will you go to do ceilings and have them ask if your husband is coming? And you say, I sure hope so. How many times will you make a meal for one person, or whatever it may be? And I don't mean to harp on my own, it's simply the example I can use, but I hope that you are using it to think. What are you waiting for? And how long will you wait for God's promises to be fulfilled? Will you wait until the fourth watch, until it seems like it is the end? Um, A great story for this in the Book of Mormon is 3 Nephi chapter 1. As a people of believers are about to be annihilated by unbelievers because of their faith in a promise that God made. And they have to have faith until the very day they're going to be killed and their faith is redeemed. And again, I apologize. I don't mean to harp upon my own situation. I take some of that back. I'm not trying to pity party, but I did want to, uh, I feel badly about that. That's why I went back to it. I I do want to emphasize there are these things that we have to wait. Um, And sometimes it may seem that it's too late. How long will you wait for the promises of God to be fulfilled? And that is part of the trial of our faith. Lastly, faith in God, not in outcomes. What is the difference between having faith in God and faith in an outcome? And why is that difference important? What do you think? Take a comment or two. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. But if not, we have faith even if it doesn't happen. Great. Any other comments? Yeah, we need to trust him and not trust an outcome. And I think perhaps uh, um, that is so important. Outcomes, again, this goes back to that idea that are true. How do you know what is true? And if you put your faith in an outcome that you want to be true, but you don't know is going to be true, what happens to your faith when that doesn't happen? You have to put faith in things only that are true. And, I, and that is why our, first article, or our fourth article of faith says that it is faith in Jesus Christ because he is truth. And thus, and his promises, his word is true, which was the prior point, that he will fulfill his promises even if we have to wait for them. So we must put our faith in God and not our faith in an outcome. Uh, let me see if I can... Uh, President Hinckley, I can't find President Hinckley. We will not be hearing from President Hinckley right now. Oh, I found it. Um, President Hinckley taught concerning the need to center our lives in Jesus Christ. He said, we live in a world of uncertainty. For some, there will be great accomplishment. For others, disappointment. For some, much of rejoicing and gladness, good health and gracious living. For others, perhaps sickness and a measure of sorrow. We do not know. But one thing we do know, like the polar star in the heavens, regardless of what the future holds, there stands the Redeemer of the world, the Son of God, certain and sure as an anchor of our immortal lives. He is the rock of our salvation, our strength, our comfort, the very focus of our faith. Ether, likewise, said as, says that as we put our faith in God, that that will become an anchor to our lives, that he is the one sure thing. I think that's Ether 12, chapter 4, or sorry, after chapter 12, verse 4. He says, which hope cometh of faith maketh an anchor to the souls of men, which would make them sure and steadfast, always abounding in good works, being led to glorify God. So our faith needs to be in God, 
and not in an outcome. Uh, President or Elder Ballard Bednar ooh, gave a great talk on this. And we, she talked about a young couple where the husband, after about just three weeks of being married, found out he had cancer. Do you remember this talk? Yeah. And um, the husband found out he had cancer and was really struggling and eventually was given the opportunity to meet with Elder Bednar. And in that conversation was hoping he'd be giving a blessing and be healed. But instead, Elder Bednar asked him this question. He says, do you have the faith not to be healed? And he's like, that's not what I came to hear. And Elder Bednar says, if it is the will of God that instead of being healed, you are taken out of this life, do you have faith enough to not get what you want, to not get the outcome you are looking for? Do you have the faith not to be healed? And eventually the, he responded that he did. I invite you to read that talk. It's so amazing. Because um, he laid, later writes him a letter. And he said, I, you know, I wanted to be healed, but I realized that that was, you know, one-dimensional, essentially. Um, that he had to have faith that God knew what was best, and that his will triumph, triumph, trumped all else, and that really would be for the best. And that's the type of faith that can make us sure and steady in times of trial. Not the faith that things will immediately get better, not the faith that someone will get healed, not the faith that our child will return to the gospel when we want them to, not a faith that a man on a you know, gallant knight on his steed will come racing through the chapel doors. That, that's faith in outcomes. But we must have faith in God. I loved the sister's comment about, well, oh, let me read this quote, because I cannot not read this quote, because I love it so much. We need to have faith that God knows better than we do. Elder Maxwell says this, the omniscience of God in the minds of some well-meaning Latter-day Saints has been qualified by a concept of eternal progression. Some have wrongly assumed that God's progress is related to his acquisition of additional knowledge. So if he's supposed to progress eternally, then he must still have things to learn, is what they say. God derives his great and continuing joy and glory by increasing and advancing his creations and not from new intellectual experience. There is a vast difference, therefore, between an omniscient God with a false notion that God is, there is a vast difference, therefore, between an omniscient God and the false notion that God is on some sort of post-doctoral fellowship, still searching for additional key truths and vital data. Were the latter so, God might at any moment discover some new truth not previously known to him that would restructure, diminish, or undercut certain truths previously known. Prophecy would be mere prediction. His plan of salvation is constantly underway, underway not constantly under revision. I love that. Sometimes we do. We think, I don't know if he really knows. He might learn something new, kind of like he's on this postdoctoral fellowship. No, we need to have faith in God and in his plan. I love the sister's comment about, but if not, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that God will save us from the fire. But if not, we will not deny him anyway. In the Book of Mormon, for me, there is a poster child of but if not. Can you think of one? I talked, to, I gave about half of a list I'd made just for time earlier of miracles that happened as, as uh, characters or people, no, there were not characters, people in the Book of Mormon had faith, whether it was to be able to get the plates or get to a promised land or to not die in the war with the 2,000 stripling warriors, all these amazing um, evidences and exercising of faith that results in a miracle. But in the Book of Mormon, there are, I know of at least one really good example of one who did not have the miracle, Abinadi. For me, in the Book of Mormon, Abinadi is the poster child of but if not, who's going to do the will of God and who eventually prophesies of his own martyrdom before it happens. Right, or says, uh, prophesies during his martyrdom, rather, of what will happen. Um, he is the poster child for me of but if not. And it is that faith that is not in an outcome, but in God, that carries us through the hardest times. In the Book of Mormon, you don't see that phrase, but if not, but you do see another one. It is nevertheless. For me, that is the Book of Mormon's version of nevertheless. Alma 1, this was a great trial to those that stand fast in the faith. Nevertheless, they were steadfast and immovable in keeping the commandments of God. Helaman 3, the more humble part of the people did suffer great persecutions. Nevertheless, they did fast and pray often to wax stronger. Um, the Lord was slow to hear their cry. Nevertheless, the Lord did hear their cries. Um, let me find, I'm just, there are lots of these, you'll see them. 
Um, Nephi is tied up in the boat, his ankles are swollen, great was the soreness thereof. Nevertheless, despite that, I did look to my God and I did praise him all the day long. The people wouldn't listen to Alma in the city of Ammonihah. Nevertheless, Alma labored on. Nephi, where he talked about this, was led by the Spirit, not knowing what he should do. Nevertheless, trusting in God, he went forth. Many had received wounds. This is now the war chapters. Nevertheless, they stand fast in the liberty with which God has made them free. Nephi's psalm, when I desire to rejoice, my heart groaneth because of my sins. Nevertheless, I know in whom I had trusted. Alma 46, the 2,000 stripling warriors, now they had never fought, yet they did not fear death and did think more upon the liberty of fathers than they did upon their own lives. So sisters, for you, what is your nevertheless? What is the thing where the outcome may not come? My husband may not get well from his sickness. Nevertheless, I will be faithful to God. My son may leave the faith and not come back in this life, or at least for some period. Nevertheless, I will stay with my God. Take a second. What is your nevertheless? God has promised me, whatever it may be, fill in the blank. And it hasn't come. Nevertheless, will you stay strong? Will you wait for the promises of God? And will you stand by him? Uh, in January of this year, there was a speech given at BYU, BYU Speeches website, um, that um, has quickly risen. I don't know if risen is the word. It's quickly become the third, in three months, the third most viewed speech ever for BYU. Just so happened it was President Day, my mission president, Elder Lawrence E. Corbridge of the 70. He gave a talk called Stand Forever. And like I said, it's um, now the third most viewed BYU speech of all time. I invite you to view it. Um, but in it, he talks about, he actually has an assignment as a member of the 70, was asked to read anti-Mormon, all the anti-Mormon literature he could get his hands on. His talk is about the, his reaction to that, but it is more the invitation to all of us to stay with God, to stand forever. He gives a powerful testimony at the end of how he knows what he knows and why he stays. All of us will have times where our faith is tried where we don't know what the outcome will be, or we don't know when it will come. For me, as I've had opportunity in the past three weeks to contemplate this subject, which, um, and, and my own experience in it, I can say for me that nevertheless, I will stay. That Every week when we take the sacrament, that's what we tell God. I'm still here. I'm staying. No matter what the outcome, I will stay. I will stand forever. I have stayed. You have stayed. It has been a trial of faith for all of us. But it makes us who God wants us to be. It proves the substance, the evidence, the assurance of our faith to him. And in our confidence in his promises to us, whether in this life or the next. Perhaps the biggest example of but if not is Christ in Gethsemane. As he kneeled and prayed, Oh Father, let this cup pass from me. And what's the next word? Nevertheless, not as I, but as thou wilt be done, be as thou wilt. His reason for his desired outcome not occurring in that particular moment for the thing that he asked for was actually for our greatest good. 
Interesting, interestingly, in Mosiah chapter 14, it is Abinadi, the Book of Mormon, but if not, that quotes these lines about the Lord just before Abinadi himself will be killed, that he was bruised for our iniquities, and that he was, um, the chastisement of his peace was upon us, that it pleased the Lord to bruise him, because with his stripes we are, he, are healed. So I want to end with just one scripture, Second Nephi, chapter 10, verse 20. This is Jacob. And now, my beloved brethren, seeing that our merciful God has given us so great knowledge concerning these things, let us remember him and lay aside our sins and not hang down our heads, for we are not cast off. Nevertheless, we have been driven out of the land of our inheritance, but we have been led to a better land. And I, I, in, I testify the same for us, that God knows us, that through our trials of our faith, as we put our faith in order to step to precede the miracle, as we trust in his timing and wait upon the promises of the Lord, and as we put our faith in him and not in outcomes, that the trials of our faith will one day pass, that God shall wipe away every tear, and that he will soothe every heart, and that we will be his. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.